0: Big breath, big sigh, greetings to all of you. I am very honored to be here. I don't take the privilege of speaking to people lightly. There is absolutely no reason that you should listen to me unless I speak truth on behalf of God. I pray that is what happens. I wanna share with you one very, very important truth that I shared with the last service. This is a round table. Now it's a pulpit. And Pastor Ben does not have a pulpit. He has a round table. I'm a pastor from the old days. I need a pulpit. (laughs) And I can do all sorts of expressions with the pulpit. So I move it in front. Last week we listened to Jonathan give a very excellent message on scripture and the fact that we need to read scripture. And as a matter of fact, he emphasized it so strong, he said, read, read, read. We're talking about rhythms, the rhythms of the Christian life. And the first one was, we are people of scripture. Read your Bible. Today we're going to say, pray, pray, pray topic of prayer. am going to break the mold a little bit and begin the service by assigning you a memory verse, and it's up on the screen. Don't be frightened. It's not the whole thing. It's just that it was supposed to be blue, but it's purple. Lord, teach us to pray. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord. Teach us to pray. That is your memory verse. I'll test you next week. Can you remember it? Let me hear you say it. Lord, teach us to pray. We're going to pray together. Pray with me right now. Gracious Father, Holy Father, Holy Lord Jesus, Spirit of the Living God, how desperately we need you. And so, Lord, we come to you with a simple request today that you will enlighten us and even more than we've known before. Will you teach us how to pray? We need to be people of prayer, Lord. So teach us well. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> I want to begin with another scripture. I want you to listen to this. This is taken from 2 Chronicles and it is when Solomon is dedicating the temple in Jerusalem. It's a very interesting passage and I love the picture that it paints. So listen to this. Now, Solomon had made a bronze platform about this platform. Five cubits long, five cubits wide, three cubits high. And he set it in the midst of the court. And he stood on it. And then he knelt on his knees in the presence of the assembly. And he spread out his hands towards heaven. Can you see it? Solomon, by the way, knew how to kneel. It's not like our politicians are kneeling today, you know. This is the sophisticated kneel. No, Solomon kneeled and he spread out his hands to heaven and the presence of the whole nation of Israel gathered there and he prayed. He prayed for an entire chapter. Oh Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you. In heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Oh my goodness, how desperately we need leaders who can model that kind of thing to us. Can you imagine if our national leaders were like that? It wouldn't work in the United States. We're supposed to be a secular government, but how wonderful that would be. Our state leaders... Our governor, can you imagine if our governor would do that sincerely? Oh, how we need church leaders who will model sincere prayer like that. Lord God of heaven, oh, how wonderful it would be if you and I could pray like that. May it be so, may it be so. I was giving a message on prayer several years ago, and I did some reading. I found this quote from Martin Luther, one of my heroes, the hero, one of the heroes of the Reformation. And he said this, he said, I have so much to accomplish every day that unless I begin my day with three hours of prayer, there is no way I can accomplish it all. And I read that and it just kind of, I kind of wilted inside. Three hours a day. Sometimes I have a hard time praying for three minutes a day. Three hours a day. Maybe we have a paradigm problem. No, I'm telling you, (laughs) we have a paradigm problem because we think we know things. Do this. Get on your computer and Google books on prayer. (laughs) The list is huge. Here's a few of them. The praying parent. The praying wife. The praying husband. The hour that changes the world. The battle plan for prayer. I like that one. Praying God's will for your life. The Necessity of Prayer, Dangerous Prayers. These are all book titles, prayers that avail much. A simple way to pray. I don't have, I'm not recommending any of these books. They're probably good. You'd probably do good to read them. I have no idea. I just Googled them and I looked them up. One thing that I did learn, I have learned from my previous experiences being a pastor, is a lot of pastors, why are there so many books? Because so many pastors think that they're not anybody until they write a book. And what better thing to write on is prayer. And so they do. But the one thing I'm certain, and the one thing I know you're certain of, we need to know how to pray, and we need to pray. And I believe that we would all agree the ultimate authority on this topic is Jesus himself. And it's interesting to me because Jesus did teach us to pray. And he begins it with this simple phrase. When you pray, pray then in this way. And we will turn right around and instead of praying then in this way, we will pray the words that he prayed. That is not what Jesus is doing, but we're gonna do what all good Christians do. We're supposed to do, we know that. We're going to recite the prayer together. We know it as the Lord's Prayer. So pray this with me. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and forever amen (laughs) I love that when Ben asked me to speak on prayer I told him I need two and a half hours and he said no And so I'm going to do this. This is a model from Jesus. This is, Jesus did not ask us, when you pray, pray these words. He said, when you pray, pray like this. And this is what it looks like. It begins with worship. How is your personal worship experience? Because according to Jesus, when you pray, you begin by worshiping God. How are you doing? Or have we, have you just like me kind of forgotten that part and skipped right over it? Hmm, interesting. How can we ignore that when Jesus said, Pray like this, and we don't do it? It begins in worship, and then we pray for the kingdom principles god's will that's where we pray for others we pray for the church we pray for our neighbors the kingdom of thy kingdom come thy will be done and then we pray for essential needs by the way those are needs not wants you know the song oh lord won't you buy me a mercedes benz you guys know that song that's not a need by the way Essential needs, as Americans, that's where we pray thanksgiving. And then we pray through the principles of forgiveness. A sermon in itself. And then number five gets pretty heavy. The issue of evil and the temptations they bring. Ben will not let me speak for two and a half hours. So I am going to restrain myself, and I will simply focus on two of those, number one and number five. Number one, prayer begins with worship. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Very interesting, go up to any good Christian and ask them the question, how is your worship life? And they will either give you a blank stare or they will assume you mean, how's worship services going at church? That's what they'll think. Every worship leader, and God help our worship leaders, is there ever a difficult task? it is to be a worship leader in a church because we tend to center our worship around music and it's always the wrong music. Worship leaders would do a wonderful job if they would ask me to list the songs because I know good songs. There's a lot of bad songs out there. Every worship leader has had the discussion, what in the world can we do to breathe life into our worship service? What can we do to make the worship service more dynamic? And the interesting thing is, is what we fail to realize is the failure that they're struggling against is their own failure and the failure of pastors and teachers. And I'm pointing at myself. Because we don't do a good job of teaching this principle. You should be a worshiper before you ever come here. Dynamic corporate worship happens when worshipful people gather together and it just becomes spontaneous. Because these people are people who worship God. Prayer begins with worship, and it would be good for us then maybe to say, well, what really is worship? Prayer, I mean worship, not prayer. Worship is an intense dichotomy. It's the best way I know to define it. It's an intense dichotomy where veneration and intimacy kiss, and they come together. That's what worship is. That is what would be happening on your internal part in worship. And if it's not happening, you might question yourself because maybe worship is not happening. I'm going to tell a couple of stories to try to make this point and help to define these issues. The first one is the cute story. Completely inadequate, but I'm going to tell it anyway. So the great king is coming back into his kingdom after his victorious battle where he has defeated this other kingdom that was constantly assaulting and causing the people of his kingdom to suffer. And he finally defeated them and put an end to them. And the people have now been set free from this assault from this other kingdom. And so he's riding back. He's on his great white horse. He has his royal robes on. And the crowds have turned out. And there's multitudes and they're cheering and they're throwing flowers. And they're praising the great king because he has saved us from our enemy. And there are so many people that the soldiers are holding the people back so that they don't crowd the king. And then suddenly this little dirty-faced kid with dirt all over his face and he's always getting into mischief and always causing trouble, he sneaks between two of the soldiers unseen and he starts running out to the king. And this one soldier reaches out and he grabs the kid by the collar and he drags him back and he said... You can't go out there. Don't you know that that's the king? And the little boy says, that might be the king, but he's my daddy. And the soldier looks, and the king is getting off of his horse and kneeling down with his arms out, and he thinks, I better let this little boy go, because he loves him. Veneration and intimacy kiss. Inadequate story. Let's try it again with scripture. I'm going to use two scriptures. You're familiar with both, I would assume. The first one is uh, um, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah's call into ministry. From the sixth chapter of Isaiah. Listen to these words. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne lofty. Can you see it? Lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe was filling the temple. And seraphim stood above him, angelic beings. With six wings, with two they covered their face, two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And they're calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out and the temple was filling with smoke. And Isaiah says, Then I said, Woe is me because I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. That is veneration. Veneration is when sinfulness comes into the presence of holiness. And you go, oh my God. That's veneration. Intimacy has to come into play. Another scripture, you guys all know this story. You'll recognize it immediately. And so the prodigal thought to himself, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go back to my father. And I will say to him, father... I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Please make me one of your slaves. And so he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off. His father saw him. Had compassion for him. And he ran. And he embraced him. And he kissed him. That's intimacy. Worship. Happens when veneration and intimacy come together and kiss. Hallowed be thy name, but he's my dad. There should be this ecstatic experience of unbelievable veneration and unbelievable adoration and intimacy when we worship. Veneration is easy for most of us. It's easy for me because I know who I am. I know you probably think I'm a wonderful man. I know I am not. I know myself. I am not a good man. I stumble all the time. I make mistakes. I make people angry. I foul up. Sometimes I even make bad decisions. But intimacy, intimacy is difficult because how could God love one like me? How can God possibly be intimate with me because I know I'm not a good man? Well, the reality of it is is you know the answer. And the answer is the gospel. You can know it because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. You know that. I know that. And how dare any of us ever say to God, it's not enough. It's enough for you to experience the entire experience of worship. To be practical, what does it look like? You tell me. You have the scriptures. The scriptures give practical examples of what worship looks like, do you? You can stand, you can kneel, you can sit, you can prostrate on the floor, you can even sing. You can laugh, you can cry. You can have moaning with groans too deep for words. You can do all the above. But the important thing is, is that you are a worshiper and prayer begins there. Is that how you pray? Because Jesus said, pray like that. So now I'm going to go to the heavier side of the message. Number five of the model, temptation, evil, and deliverance. Lead us not into temptation, Lord, but deliver us from evil. I'm going to begin this section with another scripture because I want to make sure you know that the intense language of this section is from scripture and it's not from my imagination. I'm reading from a passage in Ephesians 6, beginning with verse 10. The apostle says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and put on the whole full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against the powers and the world forces of darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. People, do we take this seriously? Do you understand, Do, do you honestly understand that this is what's going on? Do you know that? Do you know why you're confused? Do you know why maybe you're fed up, I keep hearing that term, I'm fed up, I'm confused, I'm doubting, I don't know what to do. You know, I am now 71 years of age. And I have to honestly say, in the 71 years of my life, and I can remember all the way back to four, maybe three, these are some of the most difficult days I've ever experienced. I'm not naive. I I want you to know every generation has their struggles. My goodness, my parents' generation, my mother and my father, they barely got married. My mother was pregnant when my dad was shipped off to war. My oldest sister was born and my dad never met her until she was four years old. And he survived three and a half years, took four years to get home, of the entire Pacific campaign. He went over there with a company of 200 men. 14 of them came home. My dad was one of them. I am a living miracle because I was conceived. It's amazing when you think about things like that. My generation has had its trials. We survived the hippies. <laughs> My wife and I were converted in a hippie church. We really were. This is not a joke. We were converted in a hippie story. You should have seen us. You should have seen Donnellan. She was classic. Her hair was down to here. It's not curled. It's long and straight. Dresses down to her ankles. Patterns. My hair's down to here. Goatee, beard. I thought that's what Christians looked like. We survived the hippies and free love and the drug culture. We refired we survived Steppenwolf. We survived Credence Clearwater. We survived Born to Be Wild. Remember that song? It's an amazing thing, we survived Vietnam. I was drafted at the age of 21, changed the course of my life. All of those things were trials. I survived raising two extremely stubborn teenagers who are very solid Christian people today. But I don't think I've ever been tested like I'm being tested today. And what's testing me today is this cloud of confusion. I'm confused, people, and I know that I'm not alone. I don't know what to believe, I don't know what to think, I don't know who to trust. I remember the good old days, I really do. When you turn on the news and there was no remote, I was the remote. You turned on the news and it was Walter Cronkite And when he was done, he would say, and that's the way it is. And I believed him. I trusted the media. I'll tell you what, I don't trust him at all today. Zero trust, zero. I don't trust him. Back in those days, you know, the first two presidents I remember is Dwight D. Eisenhower. That's the first president that I can remember in my life experience. Actually, it was Truman, but I didn't know him. Dwight D. Eisenhower, and then John F. Kennedy, these heroic individuals who I looked up to. I trusted my government. People, I don't trust my government today. I don't believe them. I know I'm not alone. This is the world we face. It's difficult. This is a trial. And we should not be surprised of this world of confusion. Where does it come from? It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And God put this tree in the garden and he told Adam, he said, You can have anything you want, but do not eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because the day that you do, you're going to die. That's where the confusion comes from let me give you my paraphrase this is not a translation this is a bob sloan paraphrase adam stay away from that knowledge of good and evil stuff because you can't handle it and if you try it will destroy you and it has it did it is and it continues interesting temptation and good and evil coexist Prior to Adam's failure, we must realize everything they knew, everything they saw, everything they thought, every act that they did was simple and pure and good. And then the trial of good and evil came into their life and everything became a swirling cloud of confusion. What to do? what to do. We need to grasp the simple truth. Humanity was tested, humanity failed and this is our reality. And we are engaged in a great spiritual war. This is a truth. So live like it. It is so real, the Apostle Paul wrote, I find then this principle that there is evil in me. The one who wants to do good. I pray that we're listening. Temptation is the word parasmos and it means a solicitation or a putting to proof by the experience of good and evil. Do we understand this? You will be tempted not just by good and evil but by the combination of good and evil. And sometimes you think that you're doing the good thing when in fact you're doing the evil thing. The Apostle Paul is the perfect example. He persecuted the church in the name of God. And he was wrong. He was a good man. That is our struggle and it's intense. And so we live in this cloud the fog of war, it's not clear. If the slide had translated like I wanted to, it would have been black on the bottom and very white at the top. And we live somewhere in between that cloud. And I was sharing last service. When I met Donna Lynn, I thought she was so lucky to have me. And I realize now that, oh, I was way down here in this black part. And now that I'm 71 years old, I have learned better. And now, now I'm way down here in this black part Because I'm confused. And I don't know what to do. Let's look at some of these temptations. Lead us not into temptation. This is how Jesus said you should pray. There's the obvious ones. I don't want to talk about them. The the lust temptations, money, sex, and power. We're going to set those aside. Easy for us to comprehend. I'm going to go into these internal temptations. The first one is the temptation of self-reliance. That is deadly dangerous. Spiritual discernment is absolutely tantamount. I love that word tantamount because it's a good, strong word. When I was a kid, I was trying to describe something to my friend and his mother, and I used the word great-huge, the words, great-huge. And my friend's mother said, Bobby, you don't use an adjective on top of an adjective. Adjectives don't have adjectives. It's either huge or it's not. It's not great-huge, it's just huge. I said, no, this is great-huge. This is tantamount. This principle is so important. You cannot rely on yourself in this war. If you do, you're going to lose. Somehow we have to get that in our heads. The scriptures tell us that solid food, solid food, this is the meat. Solid food is for the mature who through practice have their senses trained so that they can discern good and evil. Listen to me, people. Key word, practice. A key word is practice. Read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. Today it's pray and pray and pray. This is how you're going to fight this war. This is how you're going to win. Without it, you will lose the rhythm of the Christian life is essential. Every day I ask God, God grant to me an abundant faith, a courageous heart, wisdom to serve you, a humble spirit and love that is unshakable. I never fail to ask God for those five things. We need divine wisdom because without it you're going to be lost in the fog of war. If any of you lacks wisdom, James wrote, let him ask God, and he gives it generously without reproach. Ask him for help. The temptation of arrogance. This is an interesting one. This one will reach up and grab you by the collar, and you don't even know it's happening If you want to know what arrogance looks like, come with me to my first career. I was a corporate manager in a big corporation. And I'm just telling you an ugly truth. We corporate managers, we thought we were hot stuff. Because we were. And I realized, oh my goodness, how naive could we be? And so the calling came, I went back to school, I went to three more years, three more years of school, and I became a pastor, and I move into a ministry in a big church, and I start working in the church environment, and all of the other pastors in the community, and do you know what I discovered? Some of the most arrogant people I have ever met in my life are Pastors corporate managers and pastors can't tell them apart they all tend to be tempted by that why does that happen i'll tell you why it happens you need to pray for pastor ben he is tempted by this constantly how many times have you gone up to ben after service and said boy ben you made a you hit a home run i, I just love that message and ben is over there going ah how do i respond to this And then you say, but Ben, don't get a big head. But I want you to know you did good. Pastors are terribly tempted by arrogance. And as soon as you get arrogant, you begin to think you're special and you begin to think you're smart. And you're not. I love this scripture. From 1 Corinthians chapter 8, this is one of my favorite knowledge, the apostle writes, makes a person arrogant. But love edifies. And then listen to this sentence. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, that word knows, that's the word gnosis, which is knowledge. If anybody thinks he's smart, he's got knowledge. He has not yet known as he ought to know. If you begin to think you're smart and that you have knowledge, you are not yet smart. And then I love that last sentence, that last phrase, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. It's a wonderful concept. That person who loves God and is known by God, that person has a fighting chance. The temptation to fight in the flesh. I don't know which gender is inclined to fight the most, men or women. I have a lot of stubborn women in my life, including that beautiful Miss Dee Dee that everybody loves, Miss Donnellan. Boy, is she a strong-willed woman. I know a lot of strong-willed men. We want to fight. We want to fight and we want to win. That's who we are. But we need to understand, we must know what our weapons are. Because if you fight in the flesh, you're going to lose. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh For our weapons of warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Do you want to know who the enemy is? Anything raised up against the knowledge of God. Anything that will suppress us from the knowledge of God, is the enemy. It's the truth. But we don't fight it with our flesh. We fight it in the spirit and in prayer. The temptation of cowardice. This is, to me, the most frightening. It should be to every one of us. If you are not afraid of this temptation, then I'm saying you're either naive or you're way stronger than me. I read history of the Civil War, Civil War buff here, and I was reading history of the Battle of Gettysburg. Donna Lynn and I walked the Gettysburg battlefield. What a wonderful experience. And this journalist, after the battle, interviewed survivors of the Battle of Gettysburg who were in the hospital. And this journalist asked them the same question. What was the most frightening aspect of the war? And do you know what the common answer was almost to a person, the fear of being a coward? That's what the soldiers were afraid of. The fear of being a coward. It's the same for us people, because the truth is we are engaged in a spiritual war. It is happening. I am confused. I do not know the answers. I do not know what to do, but I will not be a coward, even though it frightens me. I will do what I do because I have prayed and I have sought the wisdom of God, and I will do what God has shown me is right. And I will not run. We must not be. There's a very, very frightening scripture in the Bible. And it's the scripture that basically talks about the idea of the cowardly. And it talks about who is allowed to be in heaven and who is not. And it lists all these attributes. Do you know what the first attribute is that cannot get into heaven? It is the cowardly, but for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the immoral people and the sorcerers and the idolaters and the liars, their part is in the lake of fire. That's amazing. And then lastly, the temptation to abandon the royal law you shall love the lord your god with all your heart your soul your mind all your strength you shall love your neighbor as yourself must never leave us we do what we do because we love god and we love people that is the driving force and that is the reason we make the decisions we will never abandon that principle The extent that we leave that principle is the extent to which you are lost in the fog of war. Because if I die, I'm going to die loving God and loving people. It's just that simple. And it's simply that true. But we always remember this. Loving God, loving people is not necessarily nice. We confuse that. Love can be extremely hard and painful. But we will love and we will do the right thing. Our ultimate place of comfort. According to Jesus and the reason that we can stand and the rock upon which we stand is Jesus came into this battlefield to save us. And so we stand on this principle, deliver us from evil. Amen. Pray with me. Gracious Father, I pray for us that indeed you will deliver us. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.